Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. On this episode, we're going to go through skin and soft tissue infections. The American Academy of Pediatrics bases their recommendations on the most recent guidelines from the Infectious Diseases Society of America, which were published in 2015. That guideline is pretty extensive. It cites 247 studies as evidence and covers just about every skin and soft tissue infection you could think of, from minor superficial infections to the most severe and life-threatening. In the interest of keeping this episode nice and high yield, we'll skip over anthrax, bubonic plague, and glanders, which I only knew was a thing because I watched the Americans, and stick to the things that you're more likely to see on your exams and in practice. This is also about as close as I can get to dermatology in an audio podcast, but we're still going to spend more time on management than on trying to describe what these things look like. We'll start out on the minor end of the spectrum with impetigo and ecthyma. Impetigo is that classic skin infection you learned about in school. It starts with papules, then turns into vesicles and pustules that break and crust over. If you see a description of honey-crusted lesions on your next exam, immediately think of impetigo. Ecthyma is a similar kind of infection, but it affects the deeper layers of the skin, so the lesions look more ulcerated. There's more swelling with ecthyma, and it's more likely to heal with scarring. You typically see the lesions for either infection on the face, arms, or legs, but they can show up anywhere. In either case, the infection is most likely to be caused by staph or strep species, which is going to be a common theme as we go through the different skin infections. Those honey-crusted lesions are actually a sign of a staph infection. The aureus in staph aureus comes from the Latin word for gold, and it got that name because it grows gold-colored colonies and creates that golden honey crust. According to the IDSA guideline, culturing fluid from the vesicles to identify the bacteria is nice, but definitely not necessary in typical cases. For impetigo, the treatment is 5 days of topical mupiracin, unless it's an extensive infection or there's an outbreak affecting a large group of people. If either of those things are true, or if you're treating ecthyma, the regimen is a week of oral dicloxacillin or cephalexin, unless you culture the fluid and rule out staph. If you're worried about MRSA, use something that's active against it, like clindamycin, doxycycline, or Bactrim. Moving to slightly more significant infections, the guidelines break them up into two big categories, purulent and non-purulent. Purulent infections are the ones that produce pus. The most common ones you'll see are abscesses, but it also includes furuncles and carbuncles. The medical, and more fun to say, terms for boils and clusters of boils. On the subject of proper medical terms, if something has pus, it's purulent, not pussy. People will know what you're trying to say when you write pussy, but it's spelled P-U-S-S-Y, and you don't want to be throwing that into people's charts. Every abscess, furuncle, and carbuncle, regardless of severity, should be incised and drained as the first line of treatment. Culturing the fluid here is more helpful than in simple cases of impetigo, especially for more severe infections, but again, it's not required for uncomplicated cases. Antibiotic treatment actually isn't necessary in every case either. For simple infections, the evidence shows that treating with a course of antibiotics might reduce the development of new lesions, but doesn't make any difference in cure rates for that initial abscess. The oldest study in the guideline goes all the way back to 1977, when doctors McPhee and Harvey published a paper in the British Journal of Surgery. They took 219 patients with acute superficial abscesses that were drained and randomized them into four groups. Two groups whose abscesses were sutured closed after drainage, plus or minus antibiotics, 
and two groups whose abscesses were left to drain freely, again, plus or minus antibiotics. In that study, antibiotics made no difference in the healing time or recurrence, and the abscesses that were left open recurred less frequently than the ones that were stitched back up, which is why it's still standard practice to leave the abscess open after drainage. More recently, in 2010, Mito Duong, Stephen Markwell, John Peter, and Stephen Berenkamp looked specifically at pediatric patients who had an abscess drained in the emergency room. They randomized the patients to get 10 days worth of Bactrim or 10 days of a placebo with a follow-up appointment at 10 to 14 days and a phone call follow-up at 90 days. The placebo group had a 5.3% rate of treatment failure compared to 4.1% in the group that got antibiotics, but the difference wasn't statistically significant. The placebo group did have a higher rate of new lesions at their first appointment, 26.4% versus 12.9%, but things evened out at the 90-day mark when 28.8% of placebo patients and 28.3% of treated patients had new findings. In the end, the guideline recommends making a decision about antibiotics based on whether or not there are signs of systemic illness like fever, tachycardia, and elevated white blood cell count. For moderate infections, the recommendation is for Bactrim or doxycycline as empiric therapy to make sure you're covering community-acquired MRSA. More severe infections get bigger guns for initial therapy with vancomycin, linazolid, or ceftaroline, although clindamycin is still an option if the local resistance rate is less than 10 to 15%. When the infection is significant enough to need antibiotics, it's important to culture the pus so you can identify an organism and narrow down your therapy to wrap up anywhere from 5 to 14 days of treatment. For patients who get one abscess after another, the approach is pretty similar. You should look for any conditions that might increase the risk of an abscess, like cysts, foreign bodies, or an underlying skin disease. A neutrophil disorder should also be in the back of your mind, especially if the abscesses are happening early in childhood. Abscesses should be drained and cultured early on, and then be treated with 5-10 to 10 days of antibiotics active against the organism you find. Remember, the evidence suggests that antibiotics can help reduce recurrence rates. The non-purulent skin infections, the ones that don't produce pus, run from simple cellulitis all the way to necrotizing fasciitis. All of these infections start out with red, indurated, inflamed skin, and again, staph and strep are the most common causes. We'll start out with cellulitis and erysipelas because you're more likely to see them on exams and in the clinic. Cellulitis is probably the most common skin infection you'll see, and it affects the dermis and subcutaneous fat. It can range from a small patch of infection to most of a limb or even more being affected. The boundaries can be a little bit indistinct, but it helps to mark them to see if the infection is responding to treatment. Erysipelas is a more superficial infection that involves the upper dermis and superficial lymphatic vessels, and is usually caused by strep species. Unlike cellulitis, erysipelas has very clear boundaries between infected and uninfected skin, and it's usually more raised and swollen. Getting blood or even skin sample cultures from patients with cellulitis and erysipelas generally isn't recommended. Blood cultures are positive less than 5% of the time, and tissue sampling can be fairly invasive. Unlike purulent infections, all of these patients need treatment with antibiotics. As a general rule, if there are signs of systemic infection, which again are fever, tachycardia, elevated white blood cell count, things like that, you target staph species with dicloxacillin or clindamycin. If there are no signs of systemic illness, you go after strep with penicillins or cephalosporins. The guideline only recommends MRSA coverage with vancomycin plus another agent that covers both staph and strep species if there's penetrating trauma, 
the patient has a MRSA infection or colonization somewhere else, or if the patient looks septic. Why not cover MRSA for everybody? The evidence suggests that it might not be as big a problem as we in the hospital think. The main study cited by the guideline was published by Arthur Jeng, Mani Beheshti, John Lee, and Ramesh Nathan in 2010. They did a prospective study of adults who were admitted for diffuse cellulitis to see how many of the cases were caused by strep species rather than MRSA. They looked for evidence of strep by getting blood cultures and testing patients for anti-streptolysin O and anti-DNAase B antibodies, and also looked for a response to beta-lactam therapy, which would indicate something other than MRSA was causing the infection. 179 patients completed the study, and 73% had lab evidence of streptococcal infection. Out of the patients with evidence of strep, 97% responded to beta-lactam therapy, which really isn't surprising. The more interesting result was that 91% of the time, patients without evidence of strep still responded to beta-lactams, which suggests a fairly low rate of MRSA in general. All in all, patients in the study responded to beta-lactam therapy about 96% of the time. To me, the moral of the story is to not back yourself into a corner with broad-spectrum MRSA coverage unless you need it. Just about everybody's cellulitis will start to look better on vancomycin, but there isn't a good oral alternative. There's no reliable way to say a continued response after transition to oral therapy isn't just because of vancomycin hanging around in the system, and you don't want to keep your patient in the hospital for the entire treatment course. Speaking of treatment course, a few other points to make. For uncomplicated cellulitis and cellulitis in general, the baseline recommendation is five days of therapy with longer courses if the infection hasn't fully resolved. Keep in mind, sometimes the infection will look worse immediately after starting treatment, which could be because of a sudden destruction of bacteria triggering more inflammation. You should also elevate the affected area to help minimize swelling and treat any predisposing factors like eczema or minor skin wounds. You can go straight to outpatient therapy if there are no signs of significant illness like altered mental status, hemodynamic instability, or sepsis. Aside from being unstable, patients are in a hospital stay if there's concern for poor adherence to therapy, failure of outpatient treatment, or a concern for a necrotizing infection. Necrotizing fasciitis is the most severe kind of non-purulent skin infection. The infection tracks along fascial planes, usually from a skin lesion that can be as minor as a scrape or a bug bite. Patients start out looking like a moderate to severe cellulitis with similar skin changes and fever, but then they start to get more specific signs like pain out of proportion to exam, bruising, air in the tissue, and, after the necrosis has happened, areas of decreased sensation. On a test, which is hopefully the only place you'll see a necrotizing infection, Pain out of proportion to exam findings, and subcutaneous tissue with a wooden feel are the buzzwords that should tip you off. Clinical judgment is the most important part of diagnosis, and you should immediately consult surgery for evaluation and potential debridement. In the meantime, the guidelines suggest starting antibiotics with vancomycin and zosin, about as broad as it gets, until you get results from operative cultures. The last area of skin infections I want to cover is bites. Pets, wild animals, and other kids can all cause bite injuries, whether they're intentional or accidental, and mouths are full of bacteria. Regardless of what or who did the biting, the guidelines recommend empiric antibiotics for patients with moderate to severe injuries, especially to the hands or face, or that might have hit the periosteum or joint capsule. Antibiotics are also recommended for patients who are immunocompromised, asplenic, or have advanced liver disease, but you're less likely to see those problems in pediatrics. 
The agent of choice is usually amoxicillin with clavulanate because it covers both aerobic and anaerobic bacteria, and the duration of treatment can vary from 3 to 5 days for patients getting prophylaxis to longer courses for people who have signs of active infection. Finally, primary wound closure, nice neat suturing, is not recommended except for facial wounds, and even then the guidelines say you should do extensive irrigation and possibly debridement first. Wounds in other places can be approximated, bringing their edges closer together with bandages, but closing them up completely can increase the risk of an infection developing. And that's all I've got for you on skin and soft tissue infections. For take-home points, remember that unless you're draining an abscess, cultures from patients with skin and soft tissue infections usually aren't very high yield. The vast majority of infections are caused by staph or strep species, which should guide your choice of antibiotics. Abscesses often don't need any treatment aside from drainage, and for cellulitis, you can be confident starting with clindamycin or cephalosporins as long as the patient isn't severely ill or at high risk of MRSA. The duration of treatment is sometimes a little hazy, but in most cases, five days is a good starting point with longer courses if the infection is taking some time to clear. Lastly, if you're interested in learning more about the infections we didn't cover here, you can access the IDSA guidelines through their website at idsociety.org. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you find your podcasts. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can email us directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.